church. Lord, I thank you for the people that you've given us and uh, the blessing that we have of of being able to serve in life together. Father, I thank you for all those who are serving in various different ways. Uh, Specifically this morning, I thank you for the children's ministry, Lord. It's uh, been for me a pleasure uh, to watch uh, Glenda over the years now that she's been here, that when we, from the time when we first interviewed her and she was uh, so meek and so shy, uh, to now be able to stand up in front of people and dance and lead in worship and uh, do the fun things that she gets to do with the kids, Lord. Uh, I thank you for her love for the kids. Uh, I thank you for her organization and her detail uh, in the way that she approaches things, Lord. I would pray that you would uh, continue to strengthen the children's ministry around her. We know that the children's ministry is not made up of just Uh, one person who's on staff, but in our case, literally over a hundred people that volunteer and serve in different ways. Uh, And all of them are focused on this one idea that they want our kids uh, to know you, God. They want our kids to grow in faith, that they can serve you throughout their whole life, that this would just be a kind of the first step in their discipleship. Lord, we also thank you for the missionaries we send out. I pray for the group at One Way Evangelistic Ministries, so thankful for the ministry that they just completed in England. Uh, I'm excited to hear some of the stories. I was blessed to see uh, the different ones that were able to go on the trip. I understand some of them are uh, now sick that they've gotten home, and so I pray that you would bring healing to them. Uh, Father, I thank you that they were able to minister um, in what might be our future, that England is a a post-evangelical culture a place where the gospel was mightiest in the world at one point, and now it's, uh, it's barely hanging on. And so, Lord, that's, for me, it's just a, a big picture of a place where revival can happen. Father, I know you've been bringing uh, this constant onslaught of, of, uh, of refugees fleeing violence and danger in their own countries in the Middle East, uh, flooding them into England. Uh, Lord, I believe wholeheartedly that you're so in control that you're intentionally bringing all of these people who are Islamic to the nation of England so that they can hear the gospel, bringing them out of the tyranny that they were living under so that they can hear of your son, Jesus Christ, and that through that, Lord, there would be an amazing revival there. I'm just thankful that we get to be a part of that. Father, I pray as well uh, for uh, Pastor Emery Hurd at the Cheyenne Brethren Church. I don't know of another pastor in Cheyenne that's been serving uh, as long as him at this point. Uh, He is... uh, a pretty interesting man. It's It's been great to see his leadership in the city of Cheyenne uh, in starting and helping start uh, Pastor's Prayer, involvement in Cheyenne Association of Evangelicals. But then over the years, he's also been able to be brought into a place of leadership in his denomination and then through it all to pastor at his church. Uh, it's a lot on one person's plate, and I feel as if you've equipped him uniquely for that. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would be blessing not just the Cheyenne Brethren Church through his ministry, Lord, Uh, but that you would bless his denomination through the work that he does there as well. Uh, Father, for us this morning, we're going to be in in your word. Uh, You've given it to us for a specific purpose so that we could have a glimpse at who you are, so that we can understand uh, the overarching story of history, that you loved us so much that you would give us your son, that we could have forgiveness of sins. Lord, would you bring that out to us today in your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so... Uh, Here we are in John chapter 12. If you do not have a Bible, raise your hand and someone will bring a Bible to you so you can follow along with us. Uh, Then uh, in John chapter 12, we're really kind of getting the follow-up to what happened in John chapter 11. Uh, That was the resurrection of Lazarus from the dead. 
And sure enough, when you raise somebody from the dead, that's going to lead a, a large number of people to begin to believe in you, which was the whole purpose of the Gospel of John, that it was written so that we might believe. And so we want to follow through with that. One interesting connection then will be to see how those who believed then began to worship Jesus uh, in this next section here. It's going to encompass not just the anointing of Jesus' feet uh, by Mary, but it's also going to encompass in this particular passage uh, what we would call Palm Sunday as Jesus is then entering into Jerusalem. And it begins for us this focus on the last week of the life of Jesus before he goes and is crucified on the cross. Now, uh, what we will notice today in this uh, is this new focus on the death of Jesus, but it's described in an interesting way. In verse 23 of chapter 12 here, uh, Jesus is going to say, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Uh, and glorified is a word that we uh, we know in a very general sense, if you ever followed any of the uh, older catechisms, you understand that the chief end of man is to glorify God and to love Him forever. Uh, this idea that we as believers should exist for and the things that we do should be for the glory of God. Uh, but we don't oftentimes think about what that word glory means. Uh, the word glory, I think I, the best I heard it explained was by Pastor Bob a few years ago. Uh, but the, the word glory is essentially to shine a spotlight on someone so that all the attention goes to that particular person. Uh, he described it one time as bragging on Jesus. That's what it means to brag about God. It's to get everybody's attention and draw it to him. So our life then becomes about glorifying God. Well, in this moment, Jesus, who is God, he is also known as the Son of Man. He, God, who is Jesus, will be glorified but he's going to explain in this passage that that glorification comes through his death. And so that's what we're going to see happening here. And now the focus is going to turn to that idea of Jesus dying. It's a little bit of a, uh, you know, maybe from our perspective, we might look at this and say, if we're going to focus in on death uh, and we've got a number of chapters before he actually dies, is this what we're going to be talking about for the next few weeks is just death, 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 death. Yes, 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 yes. <laughs> it is, but we're not focusing on death from the negative connotation. We're focusing on the death of Jesus that pays the price for our sins, restoring us to a right relationship with God. That's exactly what we want to gain out of this, that we have to understand the power of this death. So let's start here uh, in verse 1 of chapter 12. Jesus, therefore, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they made him a supper there, and Martha was serving, but Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. Mary then took a pound of very costly perfume of pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume." But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, who was intending to betray him, said, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor people? Now he said this not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief. And as he had the money box, he used to pilfer, that which is, uh, pilfer what was put into it. Therefore Jesus said, Let her alone, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial." 
For you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. The large crowd of the Jews then learned that he was there, and they came not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom was raised from the dead. But the chief priests planned to put Lazarus to death also, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and were believing in Jesus. So now we have this scene that happens uh, shortly after the resurrection of Lazarus. It doesn't give us an exact time of when the, the death and resurrection of Lazarus happened, the friend of Jesus, but it does give us an exact time when the supper happened. It is six days before the Passover. So what that would mean is that all the Jews who were able, that were capable of it, were making a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. They were on their way to Jerusalem in order to experience and celebrate the Passover meal, to remember the time that God brought them out of slavery and bondage in Egypt by allowing them to pass over into the promised land, allowing the, the angel of death to pass over their homes so that the firstborn children would live. So it's kind of this powerful moment where the whole nation comes together and it's right in this moment when everybody's there in Jerusalem that Jesus is now going to make most clear who he is through his death. So he's going to be spending a little bit of time at Mary and Martha and Lazarus's house. This is two miles outside of Jerusalem uh, in the town of Bethany. And of course, they're going to throw a meal for Jesus. I mean, he raised Lazarus from the dead. The least we could do is feed the guy, right? And so he's, they're throwing this, this meal you have Martha serving and Lazarus is just hanging out at the table. But Mary uh, does this amazing thing. It says she took a pound of very costly perfume of nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair and the whole house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Now this uh, this stuff that's called the perfume of nard here uh, is actually a perfume that they would have gotten from India. So imagine in those days to get a perfume from India to Jerusalem, the cost of what that would be, uh, they estimate the cost was one year's wages for her to get this perfume, this pound of perfume. So she's really in this moment investing in worship with a lot. Now, one year's wages may not be much to her. Maybe she has a ton of money. But from my perspective, a year's wages, if I was to invest a year's wages into just this one act of worship, for me, that would be a huge sacrifice. And then she does it in the most humble of ways. Imagine the scene. Uh, they were all around the table, but not like we think of around the table. They weren't all sitting up in chairs. They all would kind of lay on their side at these low tables. They're all laying down there like this. And then she begins to wipe the feet of Jesus with her own hair, which means for her to do that, she has to go down all the way to the ground to the feet of Jesus. And depending on how long her hair is, in my case, it'd be different, but I'm guessing her hair was longer than mine. And she was wiping his feet with her own hair. And the smell of that perfume then fills the entire house. There is no hiding her worship in this moment. Everybody, by sight, by sound, by smell, recognizes what she's doing. She's serving Jesus in the most intimate way that you could imagine. And right in the middle of this beautiful moment, Judas Iscariot pipes up 
Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to the people? Or given to poor people? And of course, Judas doesn't know anyone more poor than himself. so Because it says that he used to steal from the box. So in this amazing moment where our Savior, Jesus Christ, is being worshipped in this beautiful way with this great amount of humility, right in the middle of that beautiful moment of worship, Judas decides to argue about the cost. Do you see how, how off he is here? Have you ever just said the wrong thing at the wrong time? Just, you know, it's just this kind of amazing moment and everybody else is saying amazing things. And then you just like walk in, not know what's going on, and you just lay out the, the dumbest joke you've heard recently. Or just say the rudest thing that comes to you. You just don't, you just don't, you just can't recognize how powerful the moment is. I have a long history of this. Um, I was born with foot and mouth disease. It's different than what you think, but <laughs> it just... Sometimes I miss the moment. Well, Judas missed the moment. Jesus has been preparing his disciples all the way up until this point. But when I get to Jerusalem, I'm going to die. Thomas had said, yes, Jesus, we'll all go die with you. So they know what they're doing. They're walking into Jerusalem knowing that Jesus is dying. Many of them prepared to die with him. And Jesus goes full accountant on him. Well. We could have sold that perfume and helped some poor people. Now, Jesus is not against helping poor people. But his response to Judas is pretty important because he understood who Judas was. He knew that Judas was not really in this for poor people. Judas was in this for himself. But in verse 7, Jesus responds, Let her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. Let her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. Jesus is again turning the focus to his impending death. Now for me personally, there's two things that stick out in this. The, the first is, I don't know what I personally could do to worship Jesus this intimately. I wish that I had a way that I could just tell you guys, this is what you personally could do to bring your worship to this level. But what I recognize in her worship is uh, it, it's more than what we think of worship. We think of worship often in terms of songs, uh, sometimes dancing with motions and videos. That's how we think of worship. We certainly use the music to direct our attention to God. That's why it's important that the words focus in on God or one of his doctrines or the Son, Jesus Christ, or the Spirit of God. The words help us focus our intention. But the word worship is oftentimes most described in the act of bowing down before him. And so you'll see this at different places in Scripture where it'll say that somebody will worship him what it's really saying is that they would bow down before him. It's that physical element. This is what I love about what she's doing. Uh, it, it's more than just the routine of singing the song. There's this very physical placing of herself in a position where it's recognized wholly as worship. The other thing that catches my mind here is that Jesus knew who Judas was from the beginning. 
He already knew who it was who was going to betray him. It tells us that in chapter 2. It tells us that in chapter 6 of the Gospel of John. He already knew Judas was going to be the one that betrayed him. But Jesus allows Judas to continue on, likely understanding, because he is Jesus who is God, likely even understanding that Judas was stealing from the money that was given to their ministry. He allowed Judas to continue on. Now, you could certainly say part of that is because Judas was necessary to fulfill the prophetic word of God. And certainly we recognize that. But because of the way I understand God's sovereignty and our free will working together, for me personally, what I actually believe is happening is through this, although Jesus already knows the end, that Judas will betray him, Jesus still is giving Judas every single chance to repent up until he brings the moment of betrayal. But Jesus is watching all of this. He knows the beginning from the end. He understands that Judas will betray him. And yet when that betrayal happens, it will happen 100% because of the choices that Judas makes. And so Jesus allows him to follow through to the natural end of his own conclusions, of his own thought process. I don't know that many of us think in those ways. Some of us feel like we are volunteer police officers. Like as soon as we see somebody mess up, we're ready to arrest. We're ready to stop them in the moment. Immediately, we must end this. We feel like we have to interject but sometimes there's some value in just being patient and letting things play themselves out. I can't tell you what exactly the right time for that is. You'll have to figure it out for yourself. I had it described to me recently. Um, somebody said, man, Sean, you're being very patient in this situation. And then they said, no, let me correct that. You're not being patient. You're being long-suffering. And I think the implication is they probably would have done it differently. I recognized what they were saying. But then in that situation, not every situation, but in that situation, giving God time to work that out in the heart of the person brought the person to the same conclusion I had already come to. But now because they came to it through the Spirit of God, they were able to walk forward in it with a lot less fear and anxiety and difficulty. Again, I'm not saying that's the case in every circumstance, but there is some value in what Jesus is doing here. Now, all of this starts to draw a large crowd because Jesus was there. In verse 9, it tells us the Jews that had seen Lazarus, Lazarus raised from the dead heard that Jesus was there. So now they all come to the house. There's this crazy thing going on behind the scenes. We already know that the religious leaders, the chief priests and the Pharisees, they want to kill Jesus, but we also learn a new tidbit here they also want to kill Lazarus because of his resurrection from the dead. Many people are starting to believe in Jesus. Now, I don't know what their long-term thought is here. I don't know if they thought this through, but it's quite possible if they kill Lazarus, Jesus might bring him back again. Like they may not work out well for them, <laughs> but they want to kill Lazarus in all of this. So now we have this large crowd of Jews kind of surrounding the house there at Bethany. And so in verse 12, it tells us, On the next day, the large crowd who had come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took the branches of palm trees 
and went out to meet him and began to shout, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Jesus, finding a donkey, sat on it as is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. These things his disciples did not understand at the first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written of him and that they had done these things to him. So the people who were with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to testify about him. For this reason also, the people who went and met him because they heard that he had performed this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are not doing any good. Look, the whole world has gone after him. So here now is where it gets interesting. Jesus, the next day after this supper, is headed to Jerusalem. Many of those Jews who either saw the resurrected or the resurrection of Lazarus or heard about it, recognized it as a sign, another word for that in the scriptures, and some translations have this, in a testing miracle, a miracle that proved he was the, the coming Messiah. When they see him coming into Jerusalem, they begin to grab these palm branches, and they kind of make this kind of red carpet in front of him with these palm branches, and they're, they're waving him. They've got their coats out in front of him. And they're crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Kings. This word Hosanna doesn't mean a lot to us, but it's translated, save now. They recognize he's the Messiah, that he's the coming Savior that they've been waiting for as a people all these thousands of years waiting for the fulfillment of all of these prophecies. And they're starting to believe that this is the guy. So as he's coming into Jerusalem, they're saying, what are you waiting for? Save us now, because they're thinking of salvation in political terms. They're thinking our nation, Israel, is currently occupied by the Romans. Save us now, from the Romans. They don't recognize that the salvation that Jesus had for them first was the salvation from their sins. And then they say this, not just Hosanna, say now, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And that hits on the real fear that the Pharisees had. The Pharisees, being under the Roman occupation, recognize that they have one king, Caesar. And because of their position, they were given some leeway to worship in the ways that they saw fit. Not 100%, but it allowed them a particular position of power over some people. It allowed them to still feel like they were involved in their worship. And they were afraid if Jesus is now going to be called the king of the Jews, that it's going to lead the Romans to crack down on them and they will ultimately lose not just their power, their position, but maybe even their whole nation. We saw that in John chapter 11 and verse 48. They, they said, if we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. So there's this fear and it's, it's a well-founded fear that the Pharisees have that if Jesus is then anointed as the king of Israel, as they seem to be doing here, the Romans are going to have some issue with this. And of course, as we fast forward in history, you'll find that it won't be 
more than one generation before the Romans really do have an issue with this. And they begin to persecute and scatter the Jews out of Jerusalem. So when they see this moment, this kind of crowning moment where the people are, are literally, even though uh, Jesus hasn't said anything about this yet, they're trying to bring him in through a coronation and make him king, the Pharisees see this and they're like, oh no. We haven't done anything good. It's too late. You see that you are not doing any good. Look, the world has gone after him. Now, here's the critique. Sometimes I try to defend the Pharisees because I I can honestly, sincerely see how they might come to the conclusions that they've come to. So sometimes I do try to defend them a little bit because I think they get too much of a bad rap. But... And also, I think because we give them such a bad rap, all of us think I would never be one of them. And we say it in quite pharisaical language. (laughs) But there is one thing that does really stand out here. The question that really has to be answered is the things that Jesus are doing and the things that Jesus are proclaiming, are they true? The reality is if those things are true, if he really is the Messiah if he's really who he says he is and has been proving he is, giving uh, miraculous signs of who he is, those religious leaders should say, who cares then what the Romans think? He's the Messiah that we've been trying to tell everybody God was going to bring someday. So they're kind of double-minded in this. Verse 20, in the midst of this, now there were some Greeks among those who were going up to worship at the feast. These then came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and began to ask him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip came and told Jesus. Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He who loves his life loses it. He who hates his life in this world will keep it to to life eternal. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, my servant will will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now my soul has become troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But... For this purpose, I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came out of heaven. I have both glorified it and will glorify it. So the crowd of people who stood by and heard it were saying that it had thundered. Others were saying, an angel has spoken to him. And Jesus answered, This voice has not come for my sake, but for your sakes. Now judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. But he was saying this to indicate the kind of death by which he was to die. This is the section where it becomes most evident to us that it's in Jesus' death that he will be glorified. This is where it becomes most clear to us. It's in his death that the spotlight will be shined on him. 
but all the attention will be drawn to him. And all of it is planned just so perfectly. The timing is perfect because it's in Jerusalem during the time of Passover. And it's not just those who have a Jewish heritage who are coming to him. We saw in verse 20, even now some Greeks, maybe even Jewish Greek people, people that were Greek are coming to him at this point. They want to meet Jesus. So you're now starting to see people kind of drawn to him at this perfect moment where he's going to be crucified so that all will see in his death who he really is, more importantly, in his resurrection. So this is where the spotlight is going to be shined on him. So these Greek people come and they say they want to see Jesus. Of course, they ask Philip, the only guy with a Greek name in the whole group, right? Philip then goes and talks to Andrew because Philip really doesn't have any authority. And then Andrew and Philip finally get to go talk to Jesus. And Jesus starts to speak to these Greek people who are seeking him. But he uses this as a circumstance to explain that he's about to die. Again, verse 23, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. But then he's going to illustrate it with this parable. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. So these Greeks come to meet Jesus. And he says to them, the hour has come the Son of Man to be glorified, for all the attention to be put on Jesus. And then he explains the way that it's going to happen. It's going to happen through his death. When Jesus dies, all the attention will be directed at him. And it'll be a powerful moment. We'll remember that uh, while he's on the cross, it'll go dark. The temple's going to be, the veil of the temple's going to be torn. People are going to be resurrected from the dead in this crazy moment when he dies. All of a sudden, all the attention will be directed directly at him. But he uses this simple parable, uh, just like a grain of wheat falls to the ground, you might think it dies, but from that shoots up more wheat. It bears much fruit, just like anybody but would put a seed in the ground. For instance, if you want to uh, grow, of course, I'm not an a, a, a agriculturalist, so if I'm using a bad illustration, but in my mind, if you haven't irradiated your apples by buying them at the regular grocery store, but if you were to grow them yourself, those seeds in there you can plant in the ground and out of that will come apple trees, which will bear much fruit. Check the science yourself later, but the general concept is true. From one tiny seed, it goes into the ground, it dies, up comes the tree that bears the fruit. Jesus is saying for the same thing for the kingdom of God, He's saying that he must die. And in his death will bear the fruit of the kingdom of God. It'll bear much fruit. That's what he's trying to get them to recognize. So he tells these Greek people that have come to him in verse 26, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, my servant will be also. And if anyone serves me, the father will honor me or honor him. And so he's just telling them, to pay attention to him, to follow now and serve him. He's giving them essentially a very simple plan of salvation. He does mention in verse 27 that his soul is troubled over this. He already knows the, the punishment that he's about to go through. And as much as his soul is troubled over this, he also decides that it's still right to do this because he realizes this is the entire reason he's here. Jesus is completely submitted 
in obedience to our Father in heaven to the idea of dying for our sins. Dying so that our sins won't be counted against us. And so that's where he brings it there to this prayer in verse 28. Father, glorify my name. Now think about the scene. There's this group of people around him. They've come to see him. And Jesus prays. And as we've seen when Jesus prays, it doesn't specifically say it here, but we've seen this before. He looks up into the heavens and says, Father, glorify my name. And at the end of that, you then hear a voice come from the heavens. I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. Father, glorify my name. I have and I will. The word I there indicates to us who is speaking. These Greeks who wish to see Jesus have just heard the voice of God. Now, now there's a discussion that starts up after this. Some said that was just thunder. Nothing to see here. Move on. Because just the thought of that is maybe too scary for them. It wouldn't be the first time, by the way. Uh, God spoke once to the nation of Israel and they said, don't do that again. Speak to Moses. Moses can tell us what you said. Because it just it, he spoke and it was this thunderous, booming, fear-inducing voice of God and they all just fell to the ground as if they were dead. And they said, Moses, I don't want to hear him anymore. You, you talk to that guy. Well, here again, they hear the voice of God and it thunders. Now, some of them had decided it was an angel who had spoken. But Jesus makes an, under, makes an understanding clear here. By the way, God wasn't saying this for my benefit. He was saying this for your sake. God was speaking in that moment for their sake so that they would know clearly who Jesus is. Now, we could build up a little jealousy here and say, why didn't he do that for us? To which I would respond, he did. In his word, God has spoken so clearly of his plan, his purpose, and the completion of that plan in Jesus Christ. All written down for us so that even those who didn't live at the time of Jesus still have the Word of God about who Jesus is. All of it shining the spotlight on the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Jesus pointing out that He's going to die here in verse 33. He's pointing out that His glorification comes from His death. Uh, verse 34 then, the crowd then answered Him, uh, We have heard about the law that the Christ is to remain forever. How can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up. Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, For a little while longer the light is among you. Walk while you have the light, so that darkness will not overtake you. He who walks in the darkness does not know where he goes. While you have the light, believe in the light, so that you may become sons of light. These things Jesus spoke... And he went away and hid himself from them. But though he had performed so many signs before them, 
yet they were not believing in him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet, which he spoke, Lord, who has believed our report? And to, him, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason they could not believe, for Isaiah said again, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, so that they would not see with their eyes and perceive with their heart, and be converted, and I heal them. These things Isaiah said, because he saw his glory, and he spoke of him. So now this group of people who was following Jesus, believing in him to be the Messiah because he resurrected Lazarus from the dead. They're swinging palm branches, save now. And then Jesus tells this crowd of people who believe in him, I'm about to die. All of a sudden they go, wait, what? Sorry, Jesus, you have your doctrine wrong. We know the law. The law says that the Messiah will live forever. And they conclude essentially that they were wrong about him. No matter how many signs he performed, no matter what he did to give evidence of who he was, it just didn't quite measure up to their understanding of who they thought he was going to be. And so... This crowd that was just shouting Hosanna is now going, wait, who's the son of man again? In verse 34, I'm sorry, who, who, who's the son of man? It can't be you, obviously, if you're going to die. The son of man's going to live forever. The Messiah's going to be eternal. Of course, Jesus, we know, will, although he'll die, he'll be resurrected to eternal life, showing us that we have the same promises. But here we have this group, they just can't get past their own doctrine. No matter how God has worked it out to show them and to prove to them over and over and over again who he is, they can't get past their understanding. John gives us a little segue here in this where he tries to explain this to us. Uh, he points out that all of this was prophesied. He, he takes us to Isaiah 53 and Isaiah chapter 6. And he basically says, Isaiah, who saw the glory of Jesus Christ, who was given the word of God as a prophet, has already written down that this is what was going to happen. See, they knew the law, but they didn't know the prophets. Yes, the law said that the Messiah would live eternally, and Jesus, in fact, will. Though he will die, he'll be resurrected to eternal life. Isaiah 53 actually literally says that he will suffer and die describes in great detail the crucifixion and death of Jesus. But he points out that Isaiah 53 also says that people won't believe. One of the reasons people don't believe is because their own doctrine doesn't line up with the Word of God. And they get so caught up on their own doctrine. And the thing that's frustrating about that is when somebody is caught up on their own doctrine, you cannot have a discussion with them. Uh, if you've ever uh, spoken to somebody that's part of a cult and they get focused in on just like one verse, like this one verse explains it all. And then you say, that's a fine verse. But there's also all these other verses. And when you take your one fine verse and all these other fine verses you put them together, you start to see God weaving together an entire story 
you're missing the whole story because you're looking at one piece of the fabric. You don't understand that this is a quilt. All you see is a, is a square. Just one little picture. And you can try to point them through all the scriptures and they're just not going to grasp it. This the doctrine, this preconceived doctrine that they had is actually preventing them from believing in Jesus. In verse 40, where it quotes there out of Isaiah 6.10, it also points out the other side of this. There's two things happening. That as they are rejecting Jesus, God is also hardening their heart. It's a two-sided situation. And it's not the only time in Scripture it says that God's hardened somebody's heart. Somebody's heart. You remember Pharaoh, for instance. Pharaoh, time and time again, would see the miraculous work of God, and yet he would still reject God. And so it starts out by saying, Pharaoh had hardened his heart, and then it changes to, and God has hardened the heart of Pharaoh. It's the two working in combination there. We finish this up now in verse 42 through 50, looking at a different group of people. This group is the group that is scariest to me. This group of people believes that they refused to follow Jesus out of fear. Verse 42, Nevertheless, many even of the rulers believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the approval of men rather than the approval of God. And Jesus cried out and said, He who believes in me does not believe in me, but in him who sent me. He who sees me sees the one who sent me. I have come as light into the world so that everyone who believes in me will not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my sayings and does not keep them, <clears throat> I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. He who rejects me and does not receive my sayings as one who judges him, the word I spoke is what will judge him at the last day. For I did not speak on my own initiative, but the Father himself who sent me has given me a commandment as to what to say and what to speak. I know that this commandment is eternal life. Therefore, the things I speak, I speak just as the Father who has told me. So here we have this final group. This group of people believes in Jesus. And their rulers, likely rulers of the synagogue, they believe in Jesus, but they're unwilling to confess him for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue, that they would lose their positions, that they would lose those relationships. The synagogue was this community relationship. The fear of losing those things is driving them to not follow up with their belief. And it says this, this kind of scary idea, for, the love, for they loved the approval of men rather than the approval of God. They loved the approval of men rather than the approval of God. I am convinced both by experience and Scripture that there are many people who actually believe in God, who actually believe in Jesus Christ. They'll just never do anything about it because they're so caught up on what everybody else thinks. They're more concerned about the approval of men 
than they are the approval of God. Now, obviously, that's none of us, right? Well, hopefully not in the grand scheme of things, but I do think there are those occasions where we get so fearful. I was, I was going to share the gospel with them, but they just looked so mean. They just had that grumpy face, and I was afraid if I shared the gospel with them, they'd go all grumpy face on me. And I was going to share the gospel with that guy, but I kind of have to work with that guy. <laughs> what if it doesn't go well? What if he tells his other friends that I'm a Christian? Now they're going to all start making fun of me. And believe me, I've experienced it. On both ends of that, by the way, on, on the one end, I've been the guy that was afraid to say anything. I've also been the guy that was very vocal and, and mocked continuously for it. It's easy for me to do it here because basically everybody that's here wants to be here and they're basically saying, Sean, tell us about Jesus. That's why we're here today. So I'm like, sure, why not? So this is no big deal. You might think, wow, he's so brave. He's preaching the gospel. Not brave, easy. But I, I, I recall being in the military at basic training and I'm freaked out because I didn't know what I got myself into. I'm just seeing all these other freaked out people and I know, I know if I say something about the calm and the peace that Jesus could bring to them, I just know I'm going to be mocked the rest of my military career. Well, I very sheepishly eventually got myself to say a few things. Uh, it went pretty well for the most part. Uh, I'm not saying anybody got saved through it. But I got them all agreeing with me that we prayed every night at basic training. I've got this group of guys and we would pray the Lord's Prayer when the lights went out every night. Who knew? And then, towards the end of basic training, turns out uh, that in one of our flights that was across the hall from us, there was a Mormon missionary there. And so they set it up for me to debate this guy. Like, <laughs> What? And I'll be honest with you, it was not much of a debate. I said three words or something, well, three sentences. He goes into this whole spiel talking all about Mormonism, blah, 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 just, just lays it all out there. And I said to him, do you believe the Bible is true? And he said, well, yes, I do. And then I read Romans 10, 9. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. You believe the Bible's true. It says that. I don't need any other books. I don't know if anybody got saved from that. I know I didn't answer any of his questions. <laughs> I didn't even understand all of his questions. But in that moment, I went past my fear of the approval and was able to, to do something. And it stuck with me, not that particular moment, but in my military career, my nickname was The Rev. And it wasn't because I was like revved up and ready to go. It's because, oh, the reverend's here again. Watch your language. The reverend's here. And I'd always tell him, your language doesn't offend me. It offends God. <laughs> and he's everywhere. These people believed, it tells us, in verse 42, but they refused to confess him because they feared man. They have feared or they loved the approval of men rather than the approval of God. 
recognize this. Sometimes we talk about belief in these very simplistic terms, but belief is actually complicated. Let me complicate belief for you just a minute. In James chapter 2, we're told that the demons believe. Are they saved? Of course not. They're demons. (laughs) They believe, but their belief does not lead them to follow. Matthew chapter 10, I'm going to read this one to you, Matthew 10, 33. I'll start in verse 32. Therefore, everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men... I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. When I think of this group of rulers who believed but would not confess him, I recognize that we have to be careful with how we use this word believe. Because sometimes we say to people, oh, just believe. But it's a particular type of belief that we see in Scripture. It is a belief that leads us to following, to confessing. So when it says in Romans chapter 10, verse 9, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It's the proper balance there. Yes, believe, but that belief should lead to a confession of Christ as Lord. What we believe should lead to a change. James says it this way, Show me your faith apart from your works, and I'll show you my faith by my works. Or as Bob has said it in previous sermons, he'll say, Saving faith always works. Double meaning there. But it always works. There's always some evidence of that belief in a life that is now surrendered to Jesus Christ, who is your Lord. Let me ask you this as we close up today. Have you only believed, but not actually confessed? Do you just kind of have this general sense that, yeah, I believe these things about Jesus, Yeah, I believe who he is. I'm not going to let it impact the rest of my life. Maybe I'll go to church on Sundays. But in a general sense, I'm not going to let what my belief is about Jesus really impact the way I do anything else in my life. I've got my life, and in this separate container over here, I've got my Jesus. I would be concerned when I read this passage if I was you. But if your belief does not lead to a confession of Christ as Lord, a new reality, Jesus says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? A new reality that because I believe in him, I now follow and serve him. Don't allow it to just stay at belief for you today. Let that belief lead to a confession that will lead to salvation. Amen? Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for your word. I'm 
so honored to be able to preach it. I'm so honored that uh, essentially because of my position as a pastor, I get all of this time to focus in on you and your word, and then I get to share it with other people. Lord, I recognize that in all that I preach, there's a limit. That nothing really is accomplished without the power of your Holy Spirit. So today, Lord, I pray that your Spirit would cement belief in the hearts of people. That nobody would be allowing their preconceived understandings of what they think you should be like to get in the way of what they're seeing revealed about you in Scripture and that nobody would allow their fear of man to allow them to let what is the seed of belief in their life go dead. Father, for us today, it would be a moment where we would be able to boldly proclaim that you are our Lord that it would be settled in our hearts today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Instead of a closing song today, I'm going to have us do one other thing. I'll have you guys stand with me. And we're going to say something together. If you don't mean it, don't say it. If you do mean it, say it like you mean it. It's going to be a very simple thing we're going to say. I confess Jesus Christ is Lord. I confess Jesus Christ is Lord. And so we'll say it together if you mean it. Ready? I confess Jesus Christ is Lord. Amen. God bless you guys. Next week we'll have John chapter 13. We'll memorize a verse of your choice. Thank you for being here today.